That's, uh, it's intense. It's intense. <laughs> you need to go to therapy after that. <laughs> Heard you guys uh, recruited AI for that? Hmm. What's going on over here? So it's, uh, it's really good to be here, guys. I always feel like I'm coming home when I get to be at Portico. And so our church, we're actually shifting from an evening service to a morning service in a couple weeks. So I don't know how often this will be able to happen in the future. More importantly, I don't know how often I'll be able to wrangle Nate to come preach for us. But I uh, just really get enjoying this while it's happening and looking forward to Good Friday with you guys as well. So um, we are in the Ten Commandments. Today is the first commandment. So let's just go ahead and jump right into the passages and then we can dive in. So today we'll be in Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 to 3. So you can open your Bible there if you have it. And then also we're going to be in Romans 1, verses 21 to 25. That's where Paul provides some commentary on the first commandment. So uh, Exodus 21 through 3. And if you can also find uh, Romans chapter 1, Romans in the New Testament, uh, right after the book of Acts. Romans chapter 1, verses 21 through 25. And the words will also be on the screen as well. So Exodus 20. God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Then Romans 1, beginning in verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Uh, Heavenly Father, I thank you so much that you love us enough to give us your law, uh, which is an expression of your character. Uh, So help us today to continue to see um, how much of an act of love it is that you give us your law, and help us not just to learn something new, uh, but to be changed by the power of your spirit. Uh, for the glory of your son, Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Okay, so uh, to my knowledge, you guys spent the last two weeks setting the framework for the Ten Commandments, which is, which is great. And uh, because this is something like how God frames the law for us is something that it takes our entire life to, to learn. Uh, let's go ahead, for those of you who missed it, and then for all of us who need to be reminded of it, let's just recap that a little bit now. So Notice how God begins the Ten Commandments here in verse 2. He says, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. That's the most important part about the Ten Commandments, is the fact that the Ten Commandments don't start with a command. Okay, so in other words, note the order. He says, I have loved you and freed you from bondage and from slavery first. Now, as the beloved and free, here's how you live. Okay, it's not... Make sure you obey all these laws, and then if you do, I'll bring you into love relationship with me. It's the other way around. And that really makes all the difference in the world, and it's a little bit like this. So a little while ago, I was talking with a friend of mine. He does leadership consulting, and I got on a, he coaches me, and he, during the call, I was just like, oh, how's it going? And he's like, well, just had a pretty heavy conversation. And I said, oh, well, you know, is there anything you can share about it? He said, yeah. So there's this woman, she's a mother I started working with. 
and she's a mom from Ohio, and she did some orphan care work in Ohio, and long story short, she's found herself in Ukraine, and she's currently in the position of highest authority for orphan care in that state. And, you know, so she's talking to my friend. She's just like, I'm this, I'm a mom from Ohio and I'm finding myself on phone calls with the secretary of state. You know, can you help me out? This is a overwhelming task. Like you you can imagine. And apparently as of the time of that phone call, there were roughly a hundred thousand children without parents fleeing, fleeing the nation. Now imagine you're a child fleeing and maybe some of you have a little bit of an idea of what that's like. Imagine you're a Imagine two children fleeing Ukraine, and they, they each go to a separate home. And each home, let's call it home A and home B, bring the, bring the children in. In home A, the parents look at the child and they say, hey, welcome to our house. Here's the household rules. If you mess up, you're back on the streets. Okay, that's home A. Home B, the parents, they get on one knee with the child and look them in the eye and they say, you're in our family now which means you have our last name, you have any wealth that we have, we will never leave you, and we will do everything that we can to protect you and care for you. Now, now that you're in the household, here are the household rules. Here's how you love your brother and sister. Here's how you love your mom and dad. Here's the room you're going to clean each week to make it a comfortable place for visitors. Which child's life is going to be marked by shadow and fear? And which child's life is going to be marked by joy and gratitude? It's obvious. And with the God of the Bible, and only with the God of the Bible, Jesus, you always get the second home, home B. Okay, it's always, you're in my household now, you're in my family. And now that you're beloved and free, here's how you live to enjoy me and to love the people around you. And so we just, we have to always remember this anytime we receive the law of God, okay, that order. And then it's, now it's how we enjoy him and how we bring life to those in our relationships. And so what we're going to see today with the first commandment is God's telling us that of all the household rules to prioritize, and they all, all ten matter, number one is the most important. Okay, No other gods before me, otherwise known as idolatry. So let's ask three questions of this commandment and walk through it. So first, uh, number one, what's the essence of idolatry? Number two, why is it so dangerous to, to, to break that command, no other gods before me? And then number three, what's the, what's, the, what's the solution for it? So first, number one, what's at the heart of idolatry? What's the essence of it? Number two, why is it so dangerous? And then number three, given its danger, what's the solution for it so we can walk in life and love? Okay, so first, uh, number one, what's the essence of idolatry? And here we see this. Uh, we also got it from the catechism as well. And so here uh, we, we, we see this in Paul as he's commentating on the, as he's commenting on the first commandment. And look at verse 22 and 23 of Romans 1. So he's talking about those who reject God, and he says, claiming to be wise, they became fools, and then keyword, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And then verse 25, he reemphasizes the point. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. And there it is. 
Okay, the essence of idolatry is an exchange. It's exchanging something, it's exchanging God the creator for something created. Or put another way, it's exalting something derivative, which God is the only being that's not in that category. Okay, it's resulting anything derivative in place of God and looking to that thing to give you security, meaning, happiness. And keep in mind the context God's giving these Ten Commandments to. So the Israelites, they're coming out of spending 400 years in Egypt in which they've been swimming in a polytheist environment. So the Egyptians have a God of fertility and a God of harvest. And so they make sacrifices to and they worship these gods in order to increase the chances of having children, of having healthy children, right, of getting a good harvest and so forth in order to try to get happiness and exercise control over their environment. And so God knows this is going to feel very natural for you to look to created or derivative things for control and happiness instead of looking to me, your maker and your redeemer. And we hear this and we think, okay, yeah, sure, the Egyptians, the Israelites, they, they look to like these little idols, these little wooden objects, they would bow down to them to exercise control over their environment. How primitive. And I think the Egyptians were just more honest about what they were doing. Or because we don't name the god, we don't name a particular god Osiris. We name it stock market and retirement. Okay, we may not bow down to a statue of Aphrodite. Okay, but because we're more sophisticated, we call it sex and intimacy and relationships. Okay, we, we're no different. We do the same thing. We just like to dress up in different names to try to hide this part about ourselves. And so that's number one. Okay, just first, we, we exchange God. Every person does it. Okay, we exchange God for something created. So now number two, let's look at why is it so dangerous? Why is it so dangerous? Okay, we don't, we don't always want to make too much of the order of the Ten Commandments, but there is a logic to it. And number one is number one for a reason. Okay, so first, why is it so dangerous? And it's because, we can say first, it's dangerous because it's the root of every single dysfunction. So you can't break any of the other Ten Commandments, two through ten, without first breaking the first one. Okay, so the reason why you overwork and don't keep the Sabbath, right, commandment number four, is because as an example right? You're looking to your work and your work ethic, right? As a means of provision rather than God, exchanging something created for God, the creator. Okay. Or commandment number 10, thou shalt not covet. The reason why you may envy someone else's lifestyle or their skill set or their spouse or their children is because you're looking to something derivative, okay? A lifestyle, a spouse, a child, and so forth, rather than your creator to give you significance and happiness. And you, you can apply this principle to any of Number two through ten, you can't break them without first, without breaking the first one. And I've heard critiques of the Ten Commandments to the effect of it goes something like this. All right, so if this is really God, you know, giving the commandments to the Israelites, and He can only choose ten, don't you think He could have come up with a better list? So why, why not? Hey, why not? How about don't commit genocide or don't commit rape instead of something silly like? Don't have any other gods before me. 
And that, that's interesting. That maybe sounds reasonable on the surface, and boy, all you have to do is dig just a little bit. Okay, so Hitler couldn't have broken the sixth commandment, thou shalt not murder, among other things. If he didn't first worship at the altar, right, worship the God of nationalism, of control, of needing to protect his fragile sense of identity. Harvey Weinstein couldn't have done, wouldn't have done what he did. Okay, if he didn't first worship at the altar of power, of pleasure, of trying to hide his own sense of insignificance and his own shortcomings, and everybody around him who kept it under wraps wouldn't have done what they did if they didn't worship the God of trying to preserve their own job security. Here, let's look at our own house. Like, think about all the, the horrific church abuse scandals that have been coming out over the last few years. Church leaders wouldn't and couldn't have done the heinous evil that they did and the power brokers around them hiding what was going on for so many years if they weren't worshiping at the altar of, we need to just protect the name of our institution and its reputation. Okay, so when God puts this as number one, this is very wise. Okay, so number one, it's the root of every single dysfunction. Uh, Number two, why is it so dangerous, is it be, it's because it distorts our thinking. It, it distorts our thinking. So if you go back to Romans 1, if you see in, uh, toward the end of verse 21, Paul writes, when they didn't honor him as God, right, or worship him as the creator, they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. And what Paul's getting at is, any time we exchange the majesty of God for something derivative, like that's so out of step with reality and so out of step with what's beautiful and good that we can't do it without having our minds distorted to begin with. And then it just furthers the darkening of our minds when we do it. And here's, a, here's an example. So imagine... Imagine after church, you're out somewhere, maybe you're out at a coffee shop or a lunch place, and then maybe you see another parent from the church there, and you see them across the way, and they, they have their little child with them. And a stranger walks up to the parent and child and says, hey, I'll, I have a new iPhone. I'll give you this iPhone in exchange for your child. And you know the person is not going to love that child, if you catch the meaning. And the parent makes the exchange, right? They give away their child in exchange for the iPhone. And immediately, I mean, hopefully you feel the, the nausea at imagining something like that. Why? Because the, the value differential between an iPhone, as impressive as it is, and a human being, whether it's your child or not, is stratospheric. And even more so, I mean, infinitely greater is the value gap between God, our maker and our redeemer, and anything derivative. So anytime we make that exchange, you, you can see it, like it's not just foolish, but it's wrong. And it furthers the distortion of our thinking. And then whatever we make that thing into our God, we will justify anything to keep it. And so as some concrete examples, uh, I know a... I know a woman, she's a mother, and she has so desperately wanted her child to have a safe and successful upbringing. Like you could say her, her God, her idol is her child's happiness and success, that she has smothered her daughter 
with overprotectiveness, with her fears and anxieties, trying to manage every single detail of her child's life, that it's driven away this child like to an extreme. And now it's really sad to see their relationship is completely fractured. And she just, the mom is so blind to what she's doing because of this God, because her thinking is distorted. Or there was an individual in my church and they were married uh, to another member of our church and they started having an affair. And, you know, so we had many, many conversations with the couple, with the victim and the perpetrator. And my final conversation with the perpetrator, the one who was committing the affair, we're on the phone and I'm just like pleading with them to like, there's mercy and grace to be found, you know, if if you'll repent and leave this way behind and go back to your spouse and walk in obedience. And their response was, they said, hey, I love God. You can't tell me I don't love God. And I just want to be happy. And I've changed a lot since I got married. My spouse has changed a lot. And for me to be happy, I just need to do this thing with this other person. And like, there was no remorse. Or it was be, why? Because their thinking was distorted because they had exchanged. You can see the, the, the wreckage that happens, the, the fruit of the you need to do what makes you happy kind of ethic. Because they became foolish in their thinking, exchanging something, exchanging God for something created. And it's tragic. Okay, so number two, why is it so dangerous? It's because it distorts your thinking. Number three, why is it so dangerous? And it's because an idol can be can be anything. So if you go back to Exodus, you'll see in the next commandment in verse four, it's the corollary to commandment number one. God says, don't make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Getting at this idea of we can make literally anything into a false God. And so there's the tried and true trifecta, sex, money, and power that we look to as false gods. But there's also a lot of other things. Family can be the thing that you worship. Okay, politics. A lot of the vitriol that we're seeing, just the unwillingness to even hear the other side is because in the absence of God, politics is now, for many people, their, their God. Autonomy. Okay, love relationships. Okay, anything can be a false God. And because it can be anything, they're often sneaky. And so I think it may be helpful to talk about one that's pervasive in our culture by, vir- by virtue of where we live, and it affects every single person in this room, including me. So there's a, there's a friend of mine, and I don't know if you guys, how many of you guys have been to the Mosaic District in Merrifield? That place isn't natural. It's like you start, you get in there, and it's like you've stepped through a portal into the future. And so my friend, he has a Son is seven-ish, seven or eight years old, and his birthday is coming up, the son. And he's just say, like, hey, son, you know your birthday's coming up. What do you want for your birthday? And keep in mind, uh, my friend, like, if he got $5 for his birthday growing up, that was a really big deal. Hey, what would you like for your birthday? And his son looks at him and goes, you know that Mosaic District? And the father goes, yeah, you're expecting him. Oh, let's go to Target and get some toys. So yeah, yeah, I know Mosaic District. What about it? And his son looks at him and goes, 
You know those condos? <laughs> That's like, who raised you? He's like, okay, let's just run with it. Yeah, yeah, I know those condos. And the boy goes, I want, you to, I want you to get me one of those condos. <laughs> and the dad, you know, he's just, all right, let's, let's play this out. He goes, why? Why do you want one of those condos? And this was so telling. He looks at me and goes, just seems really comfortable. You know, like modern house, floor to ceiling, glass windows, step right outside your front door, you get amazing food, you can get great clothes, just looks really comfortable. And that wish is so damning or condemning because, one, kids often just voice what we're thinking and we're just smart enough not to say it. But also, two, kids pick up what's valuable to us. And in this area, we love comfort. We have a love affair with it. We really do. And so I just, I want to challenge us on how we often will elevate this, right, over God. And just a couple, I mean, many examples of this plays out, but here are some of the most common examples I see. So one is, think about the ethic that runs from Old to New Testament, um, you especially see it in the Sermon on the Mountain and Jesus' teachings. Of when it comes to relationships, if somebody slights you or wrongs you, you should do everything in your power, especially if you're bitter toward them or harboring a grudge, to go to that person and do whatever you can to initiate reconciliation and either forgive them or seek forgiveness from them. And yet I talk to so many Christians where I'm talking to them. They're like, oh yeah, so-and-so. And here, yes, abuse, that's a, it is a different category, right? Reconciliation does require the, um, the willingness of both parties to repent. But even just looking at just the day-to-day slights that happen in households and relationships and in churches, I'm talking to someone like, oh, so-and-so, you know, say that they said this and it was just really uncaring and I've been stewing it over. And I said, well, have you gone to them and just told them? And just tried to work that out. And they said, no. I said, well, why not? Because it would be really uncomfortable. And guys, I get it. I mean, as a pastor, I mean, I'm often forced in these kinds of conversations. But as a church, we have to embrace the awkward and the uncomfortable. Because not only because it's a law, but Jesus says, I mean, it's one of the most clear evidences that we've been changed by the gospel because that's what God did for us, where he loved us while we were enemies, when we wronged him. And it's one of the key distinctives that will mark believers apart from the surrounding culture. They just have no categories for reconciliation and forgiveness. Okay, why? Because though we uphold comfort. Think of some other ones. A, a father or a mother who comes home from the workday and they just want to check out from their kids, from their family. I'm sure that's never happened in here. Why? I just, I just want to be comfortable. Just give me an hour. I want to be comfortable. Or in this area, it's common to, especially now since COVID with all the virtual work, it's almost assumed now, if you can get an opportunity where you can keep your DC salary, or maybe even get a better one, but move further away where you can get a bigger house, bigger yard, you should do it. Why? Because it's comfortable. But the question we have to ask, 
if we've been brought into a new family, are things like, should that be the default lens through which I make decisions? Or what, how much more difficult will that make it for my church to become more stable and to do gospel ministry in the area for decades to come if every time people get an opportunity to get a bigger home, bigger salary, they leave? We have to ask those kinds of questions. Okay, so not it can be anything, I think, just for us, for me, uh, comfort is a big one. Okay, so now let's look at what's the solution. Okay, if it's so important, if it's so dangerous, and hopefully you're seeing why it's often will create so much pain when we disobey this, but on the contrary, it will give so much beauty into our relationships when we obey this commandment. Let's look at what the solution is. And number one is talk with God. Talk with God about it. Okay, when God makes this number one, yes, there is a severity to it because he knows the danger of it, but also I think he gives it to us, number one, because not just because he wants us to see how danger, dangerous it is, but he wants us to see his love. I mean, just like a parent who sees their child repeatedly walking in destructive habits, their heart expands for the child, right, and they move toward them. God knows this is something that you are going to be the most prone to breaking, and therefore wrecking havoc in your life and those around you. So just the encouragement would be, have you actually talked with God about it? I found that for many believers, bringing their prayers down to the ground and just talking with God about the nitty-gritty of their day-to-day lives, isn't that common? So just have a conversation with God. Things like, hey God, this, this thing seems too important to me. One of the ways you know if, you know if something's important is the, the more up and down your emotions are, okay, either when it's blocked or when you get it. This thing just seems really important to me. Can you work with me on it? Help me see why you are better than this thing, right? Or this lifestyle, or this person is. Um, so just have a conversation with God about it. It's almost so obvious that we often miss it. Okay, so just talk with God about these things. Number two, walk in obedience. Walk in obedience. It's this whole principle of you don't change until you actually change. And we can't remove idolatry just by thinking about it and studying it. It takes concrete action, often painful, for us to let go of these derivative things and cling hold to God our creator. And so just a couple of examples uh, that I've seen or experienced recently. One is there's there's a girl in our church. She really wants a husband. And she met a guy who's, he's a wonderful dude on many accounts, uh, but he's not a believer. And they, you know, they kept hanging out, and they developed feelings for each other. And she knows that God is really clear, you know, if you're a believer, then you should marry another believer. And she made the, and this wasn't easy, and it took time, but she made the, the painful but right decision just to end the relationship. And it's been really hard. Okay, but, but this was her walking in obedience because she knew if she kept walking down that path, then she was just affirming the fact that really I say I love Jesus, but love relationships are really my God. And she wanted to avoid it. And me and those around her are just super proud of her. Okay, another example uh, from my own life is I have found since becoming a full-time pastor is an idol for me is the perfect sermon that perfect sermon that doesn't actually exist. (laughs) So what this looked like for me is for a long time in ministry, 
is I would forego rest and forego time with my family on the weekends, on Friday and Saturday, to make the sermon better. Any of you who've done public speaking, you know the deadline always comes way too soon, and you could always use more time. And what God and other people had to speak into my life is, Steve, you have no business preaching God's word if you're not first loving those in your own home. And so I've had to make the painful decision of when the weekend comes, putting a hard stop on Thursday night so I can be with my family. And yeah, that means it's probably not going to be as coherent, right? Or as clear or as good as I would want it to be. But you know what? Sun still rises. Jesus' church locally and globally is still going forward. How about that? If this, I mean, this was a good two to three years that I had that pattern, Okay, so just where is the area that you have to make the painful but needed step of walking in obedience when it comes to idolatry? Talk with God, walk in obedience. Number three, unmask the idol. And here what we mean is basically any, every idol will promise you deliverance and always fail to deliver on that promise. So you need to unmask it for what it really is. And there's an example in Isaiah 44, and it tells the story of an idol maker where he cuts down some trees and he burns some wood and then he uses the remaining wood to fashion an idol. And then he bows down before the idol that he makes and he says, deliver me for you are my God. And it seems like it's supposed to be read humorously because it's like, dude, you just made it. You just made it. And now you're looking at it to deliver you, getting at the folly of looking to a created thing, right? To give us security or happiness. But don't we do the same thing? And so whatever your, the thing is that you look to, you just need to unmask it. So for example, if you make career, if career is one of your false gods, you will overwork, your performance will never be enough, you'll damage those closest to you, and for some of you that may be your children and your spouse, and even if you succeed by the world standards, eventually you'll get pushed out or retire and no one will remember your name. It'll happen to us all. You make a spouse or a child into your God, you're going to be super bitter if it doesn't happen. Or if it does happen and it doesn't go the way you wanted it to. And then if you do get married or get a child, you will place the burden of your happiness on that person, placing a weight on them that they were never meant to bear. You make comfort into your God. You're always going to be envious of those who have more of it. It's never going to be enough. You're going to become just a generally self-absorbed, selfish person. And then you know what? Eventually suffering is going to happen before you die. Every false God promises deliverance and then fails to deliver on it. So it's just, it's freeing to unmask it for what it is sooner than later and then walk in obedience. And then number four, experience Christ's love. And by the way, for these, hopefully this isn't like a linear, I know we have a lot of like people who do data stuff in here and it's really smart. This isn't like a linear progression. I do A, the B, then C, then D, and then boom, it's good. These are more daily habits that we cycle through just for the record. Okay, so then number four, experience Christ's love. So notice in verse two, how God addresses his people. He says, I am the Lord, your God. I'm not sure if uh, Pastor Nate went over this in the two weeks leading up to this, but 
that key identifier, I'm the Lord, your God. Okay, so he's inviting his people and he's inviting you and me into a relationship of personal pronouns. So I just officiated a wedding last week and in the vows are, right, I take you to be my beloved wife, my beloved husband, right? Like when I look at my wife, she's not just a Kelsey. I get to call her my Kelsey. She, I'm not just a Steve. She calls me, you're my Steve. You feel the difference? And the, the psalmist will teach us to pray. God isn't just a rock and a redeemer. We get to talk with God and, be, and say, you're my rock and my redeemer. And what God's trying to impress upon us is we will never let go of the things we're clinging to, these false gods, unless we see his unrelenting love for us and that he will do whatever it takes to persevere us, to take care of us, to keep us in his family. Because as much as learning about this stuff and even obedience, okay, it really matters. Our hearts need to be led into worship. And so as an example of this, uh, one of the areas where I saw it play out the most clearly is, I don't know, how many of you guys have seen The Fellowship of the Ring? I saw four hands? Okay, your leadership needs to... (laughs) All right, I think this will still work. Um, So there's this movie called The Fellowship of the Ring. It's one of the greatest movies ever produced in the early 2000s. So uh, it's in the series, Lord of the Rings. So hopefully I think you can still get it, even if you haven't seen it. So there's a character named Boromir, and he is a lot like you and me. He is a mixed bag of virtue and vices, and he is heir to the throne of this city called Gondor. So he's heir to the throne, and in comes this guy, Aragorn, who he is the true king. He's the true heir to the throne of Gondor. But Boromir wants nothing to do with him. You know, there's this line where he says, you know, Gondor has no king. Gondor needs no king. And he just, he despises Aragorn. In part because, I mean, Boromir, he has good motives. He wants to save his people. But ultimately, you can tell, like, he wants to be the one who gets the glory. And also, Aragorn, he, he doesn't look like much. He's just this ragtag-looking individual. And so he's, like, throughout the, the whole film, he just does not want to bend the knee to Aragorn. Well, there's this line, and this is kind of a spoiler, but it's been 20 years. So uh, at the end of the movie, Boromir, he has a, there's a little bit of a redemptive moment, and now he's defending some, some other people. They're called hobbits, and he's defending them, and he gets pierced by a bunch of arrows, and he's about to die. And he's on his knees, and the enemy is in front of him. He's this giant monster, and, or, or a Kai, for those of you who know your terms. And so the, the, the enemy's about to you know, put a final arrow in him to kill him. And then Aragorn, he he runs in from the side and puts himself between the enemy and Boromir. And there's this fight to the death between Aragorn and the enemy, and uh, Aragorn kills the enemy, and then he runs over to Boromir. And Boromir, he's laying on the ground, dying. You know, at this point, it's it's too late. And Aragorn kneels over him, and he, he, he grabs Boromir's hand. And you can see at this moment, you can see Boromir's eyes soften, Because what he's thinking is, if this man was willing to risk his life for me, this is somebody I can follow. This is someone I can call king. And his dying words are, I would have followed you, my brother, my captain, my king. And the whole story of the Bible 
is that you have a king. When he saw you tossing him to the side, wanting nothing to do with him, clinging on to false gods without hope of God or anything good in the world, he came running after you. He emptied himself of his glory, of all of his divine prerogatives. He didn't look like much when he was on earth, but he obeyed all of the Ten Commandments for you in your place. And then what did he do at the cross? If idolatry is exchanging God for something else at the cross, Christ exchanged himself for you. He said, my life for you, for you, my love for yours. Where at the cross, he took all of the pain and the darkness and the condemnation that belongs to you in order to give you all of the security and joy and righteousness and intimacy with God that belongs to him. And as your brother, he knows your sorrows, he knows your longings, he knows your doubts, he knows your anxieties. As your captain, he'll always lead you where you need to go. And as your king, he loves you enough to open your hands and pry away any false god that you're holding on to in order to replace them with the hands of his own. And when you experience this anew, you too will say, not I would have followed you, but I will follow you. And then with personal pronouns, my brother, my captain, my king. Let's pray. Uh, Dear Lord Jesus, I thank you so much for how much you love us and how much you love us to uh, just come running after us. And even when we constantly exchange you for lesser things, uh, to obey for us, to give up your life for us, and now even right now to pray for us uh, so that we can persevere in faith. Um, will you help each of us here to identify and then let go of whatever we're holding on to that um, we're looking at to give us something that only you can give? And for Portico Church to help one another do this as a community. And for this church and this city and all their families to be blessed as a result. It's in your name we pray. Amen.